Hi, I'm Karen McMichael. And the first time that I had an experience of race, I was um, probably 17, 16, 17 years old. I was on a bus traveling from Denver, Colorado to Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, this would have been about 1957 or 58. Um, we, I figure we probably dropped down south directly from Denver and then went straight across maybe from Texas across the south. So at some point on this bus drive, we stopped at a restroom in a bus station. Now, 5758, I got off the bus to go to the restroom and saw a water fountain, one for whites and one for Negroes, and was stunned because I had, I'm Caucasian, um, I had no experience of ever imagining there could be that kind of discrimination. And that has stuck with me for my whole life, and I'm now 72 years old. And so when I see photos now of that exact discrimination, it brings it all back very strongly. And um, that was my experience. I'm Steve Scher. I, was, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois, North Shore suburb, a white suburb, mostly a white Jewish suburb. In, 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 Highland, in Illinois, it seemed like different religious groups emigrated at different times. So uh, there was uh, Kenilworth, was uh, Presbyterian, I think. There was Wilmette. It was, um, well, I don't remember them all. I do remember that Deerfield next to me was... Um, was more Baptist, more traditional, but all white to the north. And um, but my my parents were from Chicago, and my aunt lived in Chicago, so I'd seen African Americans, but never had interactions with them. But driving through and and going to places, I was so I was eight or nine. I was in Highland Park, in some store. I think it was probably the deli near our house. And um, I was coming in to get some candy. No, it wasn't the deli. It was, a, it was the old pharmacy where I was used to buy comic books. But I'd come in to buy comic books and some candy. And um, it was, you know, there were a lot of people there. And I was waiting my turn behind three or four other people. And the third person, so the person in front of me, was an African-American man. Probably in his 20s. I don't remember. And when it was his time to be waited on, the person just looked right past him and said, How, what do you, you know, can I help you? And I kind of blinked a couple times and, and said, well, I'm, you know, I'm behind him. I was a little kid, too. Right? I'm behind him. And, and uh, the guy just said, can I help you? And I, and I even said it the second time. I said, well, I'm, I'm behind him. And the guy, like, looked down at me, and he just because I remember this he looked down at me and he said I didn't really know what it meant but I knew that he was telling me take a turn and but I then I but I realized what had happened and I went and talked to my parents about it I said what happened there and my parents told me and I you know I wasn't I was eight or nine you know you know kind of what's going on but but still and they said well some people are some people are hateful 
but I just remember that guy clearly because he just he just gave me that look like welcome to my world so that was the first I it still sticks in my head you know, after all these years and I've seen that happen since I've been aware of it but that was the that crystallized it for me Um, I'm talking quite a bit about this kind of stuff in my scene center, um, but oh, I have to introduce myself to you. Um, I'm Ashley Wells. I'm a junior at the University of Washington, um, and I grew up in Redmond, which is on the east side uh, of, in, in Washington, and it's a predominantly white suburb. It's like right behind Microsoft, so everybody's parents work for Microsoft in that area. My parents moved there when Microsoft was one building, and most of the land up there was actually a cattle farm or something like that. They told me stories about walking up there with their coffee in the morning and feeding the cows, that kind of stuff. But so it wasn't very, very uh, cultured. So my first experience when I like first felt my race, I don't remember the exact time, but I do remember one instance in particular when I was in fourth grade. Um, my dad would always do my hair before I went to school because my, my dad was black and my mom's white. And so I trusted him to do my hair more than my mom. And he had like a firmer touch and so I was like, okay, I'll let my dad do my hair. And he's like a lot of ethnic products like coconut oil, VO5, um, that kind of stuff. And so I left your hair a little greasy. And I was like super excited to wear my hair down one day to class. And so I walked in and I sat down and one of my friends sat next to me and he's like, oh, your hair's so greasy. Your hair's so frizzy. Like, oh, I don't want to sit next to you. Like, you really shouldn't wear your hair down anymore. It's really gross. And I remember sitting there and being like, I don't understand like what just happened. Like I realized that my hair didn't look like everyone else's. I remember asking my parents one day um, if I could straighten. If why, well, first off, why my hair didn't look like all the other white girls in my school, and B, if I could ever have what I called white girl hair. So like straight, pretty, like long. Um, and so the instance in fourth grade, I came home and I talked to my parents about it, and I was like, I don't understand. Like. Why can't I wear my hair down like that? Why do people think that it's weird? And then I got the conversation about, you know, um, we don't. there's not a lot of black people in the area, that kind of stuff. And that was really the first time that I, like, realized that I was black. I knew I kind of looked a, a little tanner than everyone else because I'm fairly light-skinned for being mixed, so I can kind of, like, pass, quote-unquote. But that was the first time that I felt like being black was something I should be ashamed of. And so, like, navigating that going forward is just, like, such a struggle. And especially in the field that I want to go into professionally, I want to do sports-related public relations. Being a woman in that field and being a woman of color in that field, which are, it's very male-dominated. It's not something that, like, women are, are trying to break into necessarily. That's been hard as well. I remember I went to, um, last year I went to an Associated Press Sports Editors uh, Conference at the Seattle Times. And I walked in, the first thing I noticed was I was one of two women in the room. And I was the only person of color in the room. Really? Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, because I would have thought that... Even with the adults. That, yeah, that the adults would have been because of sports. Exactly. Yeah. And I thought it would have been harder to be a woman. Yeah. yeah. And so, par uh, like, Percy Allen was not there. Jerry Brewer wasn't there. Um, Jada Evans wasn't there. Those are all Seattle Times columnists. None of them uh, were and, there. And African-American. And African-American. Uh, I'm all part of a uh, Black Journalist Association with them. And so they, none of them were there. And so I was like, oh, God, like, I am so alone. And I don't, I don't even think Patrick went to that. It was just me and a couple of other uh, guys that I work with that had gone. And Don Shelton, who's the executive uh, sports editor on the paper, called all the students up, all four of us, at the end of the, the, the discussion, basically, and said, you know, like, now it's time for our students to, like, ask questions, kind of put us on the spot. 
And so we went down the line, people were talking about being able to get jobs after graduating, that kind of stuff. Typical like stuff that you're worried about when you're a senior in college. And I'm sitting there as a sophomore thinking like, oh God, what am I going to say? Like, I need to be profound, I need to make a statement. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to talk about how I feel. And I said, you know, being in this room, I'm the only woman in this room. So that's a huge thing that I'm going to have to deal with working down the line. Um, and I, I don't think I ever like asked a question directly out of it, but it was kind of like a statement of like, this is going to be something that's difficult for me to work through because, just because of the, the barriers, this idea that, oh, only guys can like have beer at the bar and talk about sports and have a jolly good time. Like just because I'm a woman, I don't know how to talk about sports. And I was like, no, 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 <laughs> that's not the case. And Don Shelton walked up to me at the end and he said, I thought that was really brave what you said. Like it was the elephant in the room. And he showed a lot of courage just, like, laying it out there like that. So, like, did a little victory dance in my head, but I was, like, so surprised. I expected at least a couple of other women or a couple of other people of color to show up, but there was nobody. And I'm, I feel like I'm, I, at least I'm always very conscious of my race on a day-to-day basis. And especially, like, because of this pilgrimage, I have been, like, trying to sort through different identities because of that. And, like, navigating through that is so difficult. Because on the one side, like, I'm African-American, but on the other side, I'm white. And I grew up white. So I, like, never fit in with the black kids in my school because I talked too white. I dressed too white. I acted too white. But to my white friends, like, I, I obviously didn't have straight hair, and I obviously wasn't completely white, so I was this other. Like, kind of that gray area. And they don't make a lot of room for people in that gray area. It's kind of navigating that through, like, especially K-12 through education, where it's brutal enough as it is. That was, that was an interesting experience. So I'll talk about that more in my scene center, but... You know, they don't. You're right about that. They don't, they don't make a lot of room for that. Um, my nephew's... My nephew, his dad is black and, and Puerto Rican. Mm-hmm. His mm-hmm. mom is my sister, white. And um, he's, 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 a li- he's a little darker than you, but he's still tan. But he grew up, he was born and raised in the country, in, in Jemez Springs, New Mexico. So there's, a, there's the Jemez Pueblo at the bottom of the valley. There's the little town of Jemez, and then there's the upper part of Jemez Valley. So in New Mexico, it's usually that there's the Indian towns, there's the white towns, and then there's the, the Spanish towns because you know the Spanish came, the Indians were there. They went up a little further to, for cattle. So my nephew, and he went to public school in the Pueblo. He really multi-ethnic. He couldn't. He he was he was welcome in any group. Well, not the white kids so much, but he was welcome in the native group or the uh, the Hispanic group until they found out that he was also that he wasn't native. Or that he was that he had, you know, a, a black father, and he and he never. I don't think he ever had very many black kids even to be around in Hamas Springs. But he never had a place. He never had a place. But I will say for him, he 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 had he had his own faith. He was a Baha'i. His mom was a Baha'i, and he found a he found the strength in that. But yeah not a place for, for him. And he hated Albuquerque. They transferred to Albuquerque Academy, which is the rich, white, privileged school, and a few non-privileged kids of color get in. And he had really good grades, so he got to go in there. So now he's with all these white, privileged kids, and he's the colored kid, because they wouldn't identify him as a, he couldn't take any identity on. 
And of course, he was raised white. His mom was white. His his dad, his stepdad, was white. Well, I have a, a weird kind of a thing in a way. Um, we have two adult sons. They're both married. Um, one of them is married to a Peruvian woman. They have an 18-year-old daughter. And then our other son's wife is Filipina. And it's it's so with the the daughter-in-law that's Filipina. Her parents are both doctors. They emigrated to the United States as physicians during the Marcos period. And they had three children, two sons and a daughter. They all went to fine uh, universities. My daughter-in-law went to Bowdoin. Then she, you know, excellent private college. She had went to private school her whole life. And then she uh, got her MBA at, at NYU, New York. So they have three grands, they have three sons, one seven, and then they're twins that are three and a half. And they're wonderful, of course. But the interesting thing is their, their color. And I'm really, really aware of that with this trip because one of the twins, obviously I'm Caucasian, has a tendency to look more like our, genetically looks more like our son, so he's a lighter complexion. And then the other two little boys, skin color, is increasingly darker. Um, but again, uh, her parents were both uh, Filipino. And even eth- eth- their own ethnicity. Her father was Chinese extraction, and her mother was Hispanic. So the oriental features in the children, they all have these beautiful brown eyes and, of course, black hair. But... Uh, for them and also for our granddaughter, who's graduating from high school this year, who is yet again darker because my daughter-in-law's family was from an area around Lima, Peru, so that it, she's much more darkly complected. So I'm really aware now um, with them that I want to have a conversation, particularly with our granddaughter, because I think she's had a tough time. They live in a pretty affluent area in Florida of where she fits in. And, uh, and and I think for my, our grandsons, as time goes by, I'm sure you know these are these kids are, have some good genes that they're going to want them to go to some good schools. You know that when will it hit for them yeah. that they are mixed race? Yeah. Because and Rick and I've even talked about my yeah. husband. I was I was wondering what how do you start that conversation? What what's the What's the, what's the icebreaker? Well, the interesting thing, you know, is with our daughter-in-law, the, our son, uh, the dad of the little boys, um, went to um, Davidson College in uh, North Carolina, very fine university or college, and then chose to go to Kenya to work uh, after he graduated from college. And he was teaching children, in a girls' school in northern Kenya. And uh, he was on his own. It wasn't a program that was sponsored by the school, but it was something that had other students had been there. And then he, before he st- was fr- freshman year in college, his freshman roommate was from India. And our our family is rather unique in that Rick's mother was born in Calcutta, India, and his dad had been a Methodist pastor. His grandfather was a doctor in Georgia who treated African-American folks because no one else would. And that would have been 
probably in the 20s, uh, early part of the 20th century. Um, and Well, really before that, actually. Well, yeah, because it was his grandfather. Um, and so as a result, our family has always had a multi-ethnicity, has always been a part of, of our family. And his parents taught in China. So when our sons married women of, you know, that were of, you know, of another ethnicity, so to speak, um, there was a, you know, I had a, some reaction to that, certainly, but uh, the richness of who they are as people and as women, you know, it's sort of like our conversation with the doctors last night. You know, you make a slit. There ain't no difference. So, to your point, you know, with the, with the children, um, I don't know when you do start that conversation, you know. I suppose, you know, as you said, Ashley, that maybe it will be started by them. We've been trying to encourage our daughter-in-law to go to the Philippines. Our son is very much wanting her to go, and we want to go. But I think she has... She's a very smart woman, and she's done very well in... in she works in... Um, when she got her MBA, she uh, her work has been not in finance, but in uh, marketing. And she's worked in marketing and done quite well. So it's like I think she, there's a big part of her that's trying to go for white. And she kind of jokes about it. I'm a family therapist, and so there's a part of me... That want you know, but I'm the mother-in-law, not the mother. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to presume that I can just go bombing in there, you know. Where my other daughter-in-law, who's Peruvian, um, I think she probably she had a visa when she came to the U.S., but then I think she it expired and she stayed. She's now a U.S. citizen. You know, you you used a phrase about aware of your skin color, like that story I told. It, I was aware of his skin color and how he was treated by that white man. It took me a long time before I became aware that I was the one being privileged because he waited. He saw me as an ally, a, a like person, even though, you know, because I had white skin, you know. Even though I, as a, as a Jewish kid growing up in a mostly predominantly Christian, Christian, you know, part of the part of the state. I heard. I heard a lot of that, but you know, but for him, he looked at me, and I was, and I, and that it took me a while before I saw the the difference. That I mean, you know, that guy was saying, "Welcome to my world," but what he what he was also going to be saying was, "Look at you, nine year old kid, because you have a different tint." But have you ever thought? You said it's easier to, if the, if one of uh, one of her grandkids and nieces and nephews would go white. Yeah. Have you ever thought of that? And do you ever, did just, you ever, like, did, just trying to pass as white? Yeah. Have you ever thought, oh, I'll just pass as white? I don't think so. Um, I've always been, my father's a very like proud black man, so um, I was never taught from my family to be ashamed of who I was, and so um, I always like have that as a, as a part of my identity, like a generally a point of pride but it wasn't until like I got into school like interacted with other kids and realized that I was very much a minority that I realized that I didn't really like have a place um unless you took it unless I took it yeah and so 
uh, I noticed like very early on that my dad was the only dark-skinned person in our neighborhood. Um, there's like this drama with the lady who lived next door to us. When my parents moved in in the 80s, um, interracial marriage was still kind of like taboo to some people because for some reason this whole like racial integration thing seems to be like on the back burner for a lot of society. Um, and so the neighbor who lived next door to us would like make all these really disgusting comments, that kind of thing, um, and like pointed at my mom and at my dad. And so I'd hear stories about those as I got older. Um, so I always thought she was just the crazy lady who lived next door. And then she was very, very religious. And so she would like say that it was like a sacrilege against the Bible for interracial marriage and like, and make all these like really inappropriate jokes at my dad uh, for being black and like, like, like made pointed comments about my parents' sex lives in front of their friends. And they was just like, that's so inappropriate. And I was like, this is happening in Redmond. Like, I didn't realize that part until I was much older, like at least like eighth or ninth grade when my parents started having those kind of conversations with me. Um, what would they do? They'd call you and say, you know, that lady next door, what she says. I mean, how did your dad react to that? Or your mom? It happened, it happened mainly before I was born. Um, and it just kind of come up in conversation as we were talking about her. Um, I remember one thing she did do when, I, when we still lived there was she put a sign up in the window. Um, and my dad is like really proud about his yard work and stuff like that. He put in a whole new garden, that kind of stuff. And then he put in, we had a plum tree in the corner of the yard that technically like according to the property lines is like split between the two or or it's mostly on i think i think this one was mostly on our side but there's another tree that the neighbor would like actually cut the roots because it was growing on his grass and killing his grass he was that neighbor but so we had the plum tree and the plums would fall on the ground and i mean you can't go pick up plums every single day so my dad would just go rake once a week or whatever and then one day in every single window on the first floor of her house she put a sign that said beware of rats dogs bees bird shit and something else and it was like directed like all the windows facing our house yeah and so my dad like lost it of course but so we went out there we cleaned up the yard and everything like that which by the way my dad would like clean up the yard like at least once a week so like there was a handful of plums that we didn't have a rat problem and we had a dog, but it didn't run in the yard. We kept it on the deck like because it's a beagle and she'll run away and go all, all over high heaven if we do. And so that was, I was like, people do this? I did not understand. Where does yeah. that come from? I don't know. And that was where, because religion was such a big part of her identity, that's where I started having a problem with like a lot of different religions. And in fifth grade, this was the other big time that I like had a kind of an identity crisis um this super 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 religious girl short blonde hair blue-eyed perfect christian family um so there were two other sets of i'm a twin and so uh uh my twin and i are like more light-skinned obviously i think my my twin sister is even more light-skinned than i am girl and then there's a set of another twins in our class, and they were full black. It was two, two twin boys, and they were a year older than us. But the way the classrooms were set up, you could share, like, third, fourth grade, and then fifth, sixth, and, like, you'd switch classrooms for different subjects. And so it was my fifth grade class. I think we had, like, we just finished, like, some research paper on presidents or something like that, and we were all just hanging around talking afterwards. And then this girl walks up to me, and she goes, so, like, I don't really understand, like, what are you? I was like, fifth grade Ash, she was like, what are you talking about? And then she's like, I don't understand. Like, your dad's black and your mom's white. Like, that's like, 
that's not supposed to happen. Like, why don't you look like Derek and Preston, which are the two other black kids in our class? Because they're very, they're not like super dark skinned, but they're like really decently so. And I was like, I don't get what you mean. Like, like I'm part black. And then she goes, no, no, no. It's like, that like can't happen. That's like giraffes and elephants like trying to like have babies together. That's like, that can't happen. That's not how it's supposed to work. And I was like, what? Like, I, I didn't really know how to respond to it. And I, I went home and talked to my parents about it. I'm pretty sure they called her parents. Or I don't even know if they did, to be honest. But I actually wrote my UW application essay about that. <laughs> I bet that was I'm sure it was. But I was just so caught off guard. And like, it took me forever to get over that. And ironically enough, she, she showed up. So she also wound up going to UW. And she showed up in one of my communications classes about communication and difference. And we were talking about like how to have conversations about race and difference and things like that. And she sat down next to me the first day of class and tried to talk to me like we were best friends. And I was like, oh, hell no. Forget that lady. <laughs> I was like, she, she did not just sit I don't think she even remembers it. I don't think she even remembers it. But um, I was just, when she sat down next to me, I was like, this is not real life. And, but I was like, you know what? Obviously, she's here, like, earnestly trying to learn. And she cried on the first day of class talking about, like, how difficult it was to her to talk about race. But I was really? like, okay, like, I guess, like, she's, like, moving forward. Like, I can give her kudos. So I, can, like, she, I can work on forgiving her. But in fifth grade, I was like, who am I? And, like, I thought the particular imagery of comparing it to, like, safari animals was quite telling. So, I don't know what kind of conversation she was having at home with her parents, but I certainly was not having the same ones. So. Well, you know what I love about um, Bob Zellner is so fabulous for so many reasons. But remember, in his book, I told him yesterday, I said, you know one of the best things about your book is how you start out, and when he was in his sociology class when he was in college, and you guys probably remember this, where the, he's talking to the professor about their project they want to do. And so he's got the, the vertical integration, you know, and then there's the horizontal integration. And he said that to the sociology professor. You guys probably remember this. The guy turns beet red and says, what? horizontal integration oh, and Bob says well you know because there are a lot of different colors how did that happen and you know yep. Yep. darn right I mean I always think well how about President Jefferson you know yeah. but it is just amazing to assume you know the assumptions that we make about the color of people's skin and what that means what are you I mean that is outrageous we actually talked about human being would be a good definition. Yeah, let's start with like human being. Um, I'm actually taking a Black Cultural Studies class along with Cynthia and Patrick and Globe. Actually, is in our class. It's a mixed undergraduate and graduate level seminar with Rolina Joseph, who's one of the like communications um, tenured faculty who does a lot of cultural communication studies. And like that, one of the first days in class, she asked us like, think about when you first woke up this morning. It's the time you walked in the door in this classroom. How did you feel your race today? And I like, thought about it, and I was like, well, I mean, I rolled out of bed 10 minutes before I had to leave. I, like, didn't eat breakfast. I kind of looked like I cared about how I dressed. And then I walked to class, and I had my headphones in and probably missed five people trying to say hello to me because I had my head shoved just so far up my butt. And then, like, went to class, like, just nonchalantly. And I was like, didn't think about it. So like, I don't understand. And then I realized, while I was walking, did I see any other students of color? No. When I was walking, did... 
when I saw other people of color on the street, did we like nod and have that like silent communication between us? Yes. When I walked into the classroom, my earlier class, was I the only student of color in that class? Yes. So then I am de facto the representative of the mixed race African American woman in my classroom. So based on what I say, everyone's going to project that onto other African-American women or other mixed-race African-American women that they meet. So, and we had like a great conversation about it, and it took me like thinking through more analytically my day and my, my day-to-day interactions to realize that. Like every interaction or everything that you do, like your race matters. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess one thing I'm taking away from all this trip is I'm thinking about my race a lot more. Are you? I mean, we still have, I get really tan in the summer, and that's just a fact of life, you know, and I've always, I mean, even as old as I am, I still love to get tan, you know, but I hadn't... What do you mean as old as you are? Come on. 72, honey. My dad's turning 72 this month. Okay, but, you know, I think the, but my, I haven't, my mother and my aunt, as I recall, as I'm saying that, in the summer, if I would get really dark, you know, because back in the day, we didn't have 45 sunblock and all that stuff, so I just get really brown. They would try, my mother, I remember, used to try and scrub my knees and my face. And now I'm thinking, I wonder if that was something about that. I don't know. And particularly about black male lives in yes. this space. Yes. Where people got away once yeah. again with the killing of a young black man. Yeah with no consequence. In fact, they made money off of it. They sold That's the right. story to look. That's right. That's right. So one of the things that I know <laughs> at the depth of my heart is that all of this is about profit. Yep. And so what we have to do is find a way to make it less profitable to be racist. <laughs> we need to tell that story, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We're in one of the most impoverished areas. In the world. And it's world. because of that. Racism. Mm-hmm. Yep. And and it also created one of the <laughs> the most wealthy yep. nations in the world. Yep. If it weren't for race, yep. we wouldn't be the US. That's right. That's right. That's right. And it was the creation of race. I mean, that's what white people did when they got here. When they saw natives on you know, the island of Hispaniola, they created race. Yep. So that it was property. I'm coming, awesome. but I love you. Awesome. I love you Hi. very much. Give me one minute of why, why it was important for us to have that conversation in this building. Awesome. Uh, we, we, some of the local community members and I were talking about how this was the most uh, educated, impactful, deep conversation that we've had. And to have a conversation about race and in the spot where the Emmett Till trial happened and that injustice happened, uh, is powerful. So we want to spread that message and keep that conversation going. Patrick Weems, Emmett Till Interpretive Center, Sumner, Mississippi.